some words that I've been thinking about a little bit, words like disconnected, isolated, fearful, detached, lonely, frustrated, uneasy, maybe concerned. And I think these are just a few of the many words that people would use to describe themselves right now, particularly in this COVID and and hopefully post-COVID environment. And though these feelings, I think, have been more pronounced over the past 18 months, where we went from living, quote, normal lives to something utterly different in a matter of mere hours or days, they're not new feelings. It's not that we never had them prior to March of 2020. People have them in regard to maybe neighbors and friends or how work is going or or not working. And this has been a pretty disruptive event in our lives, though, and really a a disruptive season. This has been a, a, a sustained disruption in our lives. And it's affected the church as well as us individually. Part of church life, a significant part of church life, is corporate. It's embodied, and and that has been disrupted. And so we are in a time when we are, I think, learning to re-engage. How do we re-engage the life of the church when we were disrupted for quite some time? So to do that, I think it's worth asking what it actually looks like to be part of the church. What does being a believer in Christ call us to, or, or dare I say, even command of us? But not only that, why is it good to be a part of the church? Why is it good to be connected? What are the benefits of being attached and communally part of a local body of believers? You know, COVID is not the only reason to think about these things, though. As years progress and our lives and families change and jobs morph in different ways and schedules are adjusted, we need to fairly consistently be reminded of what we are called to as believers. It's all too easy to fall out of habit into a comfort zone that really and truly isn't comforting at all. So as a pastor, I've been thinking about these things a good bit recently. This pandemic has exacerbated the thoughts about it. And as we're hopefully coming out of all of it, it's even more important, I think, for us to consider the role of the church and our call to it. What is the church? What what, what is the church to be and to do? Church is not the idea of man. We didn't come up with this. This is God's idea. And so we must go to Him to understand what the church is to be and what that means for us. You know, in all of life, not just in church life, we would do well to regularly reevaluate how we are doing in some of the most important things. Family, in our jobs, in, uh, with being neighbors, and, and all those kind of things. And especially with that which is of first importance. Jesus, the gospel, the bride for which he died. The church. So with all that in mind, I'm starting a series today on the church. And to start off, we're going to look at a pretty familiar passage, Acts 2, 42 to 47. And it's here that though we don't see an exhaustive view of the church, we do have a very helpful description given to us. And so I want you to listen to what Luke wrote for our good and instruction 
And as is our habit, um, and one of the things that we do is after the reading of God's Word, I'll say this is the Word of the Lord, people will respond with thanks be to God, because we are so thankful that we have the Word of God at our very fingertips, and that we can hear His Word preached and proclaimed, and we can spend time with Him through His Word. So that's why we do that. So turn your attention to the reading of God's Word. And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and the prayers, and awe came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. And all who believed were together and had all things in common. And they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. This is the word of the Lord. All right, let's pray. Father, as we come before this word and we see this description of the church, the life of the church, we ask that you would guide and direct, that you would strengthen and empower me by your spirit to preach truth. I pray that everyone here, that our hearts would be united to fear your name, to see you in all things. Lord, be glorified. Work this for your glory and for our good, for the good of this church and for the good of the community around us. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. Well, this is a description that I find inspiring. I find it helpful, and I also find it rather a bit daunting when I read it. It gives a phenomenal picture of the church. Now, again, it's not an exhaustive picture, and it's also, hear me here, it's also not prescriptive. Okay, there's a difference between prescriptive and descriptive. This is history. It is describing what the church was like. It's not a magic formula that if we do A, B, and C, then D will automatically occur. Yet, though that's the, true, I think there's a lot of wisdom in this, and there are principles that are important for us to see, and there's great hope as well as we look at this text. Because in it, we see that there is both uh, an aspect of what I will call home— the church is a home or a gathering, and then the church as mission or a scattering of believers. So, home and mission. And I'm going to use those ideas to frame this series. Today is merely going to be an introduction to those overarching ideas, and then future messages, we're going to work through what it looks like in real life, the implications of all this. So, my prayer, my desire in this series is that we will look at the Scriptures and that the Lord, by the Spirit-indwelling believers, will stir our hearts to fully engage, to, to re-engage wherever we need to pick up that engagement with Him. And they'd engage us all in the vision and mission, not only of living hope, but more importantly, of God Himself and the church. So we look at home, and the majority of this text relates to that aspect of home, to the gathering of believers and it's in that gathering that we are given the description of the priorities of this, this part of the early church. Look again at verse 42. And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and the prayers. They, they devoted, they did this. Who's they? Well, they is believers, obviously. But remember, 
many, really all of them, were very young in their faith, right? I mean, the faith wasn't very old at this point in time. It, was ex- it, it itself came about explicitly in a resurrected and ascended Christ. That was extremely young. Now, many of these converts had been steeped in Judaism, and they had the background of the Hebrew Scriptures, but their eyes had finally been opened to see how to properly view the Scriptures as being fulfilled in Jesus. And they had heard the message of grace, a message of freedom, a message of life, uh, of the love of God in Christ Jesus to take away the penalty that's due our sin, and they were changed. And they were described as devoted. Devoted. They were steadfast. They were strong in. They were persistent. They persevered in it. And that word is vitally important to this text, to the lives of all believers. If they weren't devoted to these things, I dare say they would have drifted, they would have floated away from what they professed to believe. Because the culture around them, though deeply spiritual, which sounds familiar to our day and age, spiritual, not religious, it would have likely wielded great influence and sway upon them had they not been devoted to what was necessary. So then we have to ask, so what was it that they were devoted to? And first off, we see to the apostles' teaching to the apostles' teaching. Now, to grasp the significance of this, I I think we need to put ourselves in the lives of these very early believers. So, imagine what all of these folks had witnessed. Many were in Jerusalem at the time of the crucifixion. They saw Jesus brutally beaten and mocked. It looked like a defeat, uh, though darkness had fallen across the entire land for some time. And then they, they heard of the resurrection and of the ascension, and some were even witnesses to it. And likely every one of these believers saw with their very own eyes some significant signs and wonders, in particular, the pouring out of the Spirit on the 120 disciples, and they were speaking in tongues in languages that they did not know, talking directly to those who were in Jerusalem from all over the region in their own languages. They all saw amazing things, things that would make our jaws drop. But though those things would garner, I think, a great deal of attention, because that's what people tend to flock to, is that, that uh, exciting and, and new type of thing, Luke tells us they weren't devoted to signs and wonders. They were devoted to the apostles' teaching. That is, the teaching about the Christ. They were devoted to the liberating truth of God. The people sought the teaching of those who had been with Jesus, those who had had actually been taught by Jesus, hey, this is how you're actually to read Scripture. Let me open your eyes a little bit. Go to Luke 24, or just write it down, Luke 24, starting in verse 44. Then Jesus said to them, these are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you that everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. That's uh, shorthand for the entirety of the Old Testament, the entirety of the Hebrew Scriptures. And then he opened their minds to understand the Scriptures and said to them, thus it is written that the Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead and that repentance for the forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name to all nations beginning from Jerusalem. folks, the first thing that the church was said to be devoted to 
was the apostles' teaching. How can we be so devoted? Well, one, what is the apostles' teaching? Well, it's Jesus as the Christ. That's what they labor to know, Christ and Him crucified, the message of the gospel in the person of Jesus Christ. John Stott wrote of this about the church. That he said that the church, we are to be submissive to the teaching authority of the apostles. Its pastors expound Scripture from the pulpit. Its parents teach their children out of the Scriptures at home. And its members read and reflect on the Scriptures every day in order to grow in Christian discipleship. The Spirit of God leads the people of God to honor the Word of God. Fidelity to the teaching of the apostles is the first mark of an authentic and living church. So could your life be described as devoted to the apostles' teaching? Not just familiar with the apostles' teaching, not just that you can recite maybe some of it, but are you actually devoted to the apostles' teaching? Are you persistent in it? Are you steadfast in the apostles' teaching? But then there's more to this verse. They devoted themselves to the fellowship. Now, here's the part of this text that I I think is probably most poignant in our current context. You know, those who have been in church for a while, not just our church, but in church for a while, have have likely heard the word that is translated as fellowship. You've heard it, maybe you've seen it somewhere, some club was called koinonia. Koinonia is the Greek word for fellowship, and the basic idea is participation or association in life with others. It's the idea of a commonality, a sharing of life, it's communion with one another. And I took some time to, to look at this word and how it's used in the New Testament, and it speaks of sharing in the needs of others and working to meet those needs. You can see that in Romans and Corinthians and Hebrews. Of sharing the gospel, of being a partner in the gospel, Philippians 1.5, because of your partnership or your koinonia in the gospel from the first day until now. We're partners in that. We share in that. There's also sharing in the sufferings of Christ, Philippians 3.10, being willing to suffer for Christ in the body of Christ. And then Philemon verse 6 where Paul writes this, he says, I pray that the sharing, the koinonia of your faith may become effective for the full knowledge of every good thing that is in us for the sake of Christ. And what this communicates is that there is an aspect where being devoted to the fellowship of of faith, sharing our faith together in community, will bring about a fuller knowledge of everything we have in Christ. Folks, there will only be stunted growth at best when we are not in fellowship. And this koinonia, it also denotes intimacy. Sharing life together, there, there's an intimate aspect to that, and that intimacy, it calls for love and self-sacrifice. If you look at Acts 2, 44 and 45, it says, and all who believed were together and had all things in common, and they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. Folks, life like that where you're sharing and you're, you're working together, you're viewing other people's needs and, and you're taking the steps necessary to help those needs, it takes self-sacrifice. It takes love. It takes uh, 
the fellowship of the Spirit in our lives, it takes what Paul wrote in Philippians 2, 1 to 7. So if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind, do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interest, but also to the interest of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. It takes humility. It takes grace. It takes looking to Christ in all things to be able to live like this. You see, fellowship, koinonia, it's all-encompassing in the life of the believer. There's a bond between believers, between all those who are designated as in Christ that really transcends everything else. We're united as those in Christ. And folks, that's certainly the the broad overarching idea of fellowship, and we'll get into it more at another message. But I don't think we can miss that Luke is drawing this out, and he's mentioning the fellowship in the context of the gathered community of believers in worship. The gathered community. That's the specific fellowship I believe he's pointing to. It's, it is grounded in our common faith in Christ, and most definitely fellowship, folks, it's more than meeting together on Sunday. It's more than meeting together corporately like this, but it is not less than that. This verse continues, to the breaking of bread and the prayers. I think this continues to point to corporate worship. There's some debate as to whether this simply means eating together or it points to the Lord's Supper, and I'm convinced it's pointing to the latter, to the Lord's Supper. There were clearly regular meals of fellowship in homes. You can look down at verse 46 and see that. But this is better taken as referring to the celebration of the Lord's Supper of communion. And that celebration, what is the celebration of the Lord's Supper? What is that breaking of bread? Luke 22, starting in verse 17, Jesus institutes the Lord's Supper. It says, and he took a cup. And when he had given thanks, he said, take this and divide it among yourselves. For I tell you that from now on, I will not drink of the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God comes. And he took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and gave it to them saying, this is my body, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And likewise, the cup after they had eaten, so he, he took the cup and he said, this cup that is poured out for you is the new covenant in my blood. But behold, the hand of him who betrays me is with me on the table, for the Son of Man goes as it has been determined, but woe to that man by whom he is betrayed. Folks, the Lord's Supper is about Jesus. It's proclaiming the Lord's death until he comes. It's encourage one another and saying, this is what we trust in. This is the promise we believe. This is what, this is who we are devoted to, and it points our hearts and our minds and our affections to Jesus proclaims who he truly is. And then he says, the prayers. And that's actually, it's definite. There's a definite article, the prayers. Now, we don't exactly know what this refers to. Some formalized prayers, most likely, maybe the Lord's Prayer. But what we are sure is that people sought the Lord together in worship. They called upon the one who called them out of darkness into the marvelous light of Christ. 
Now, in many ways, we could say that the church was devoted to what we would term today as the ordinary means of grace. The ordinary means of grace. Our catechism addresses this in the larger catechism, question 154. It asks, what are the outward means whereby Christ communicates to us the benefits of His mediation? And the answer is, the outward and ordinary means whereby Christ communicates to His church the benefits of His mediation are all His ordinance, especially the Word, sacraments, and prayer, all of which are made effectual to the elect for their salvation. You see, folks, this is how God ordinarily works. This is how He works to grow His people in grace. And so it only makes sense that if we want to know God more, be more and more conformed to Christ, that we would do well to devote ourselves to the things that He ordinarily uses to grow His people in grace. Ligon Duncan, who's the president of RTS, he wrote of a ministry that focuses and is based on the ordinary means of grace as a radical commitment to following the direction of God's Word, as to both the message and the means of gathering and perfecting the saints. Ordinary means ministry has a high view of the Bible, preaching, the church, the ordinances or sacraments, sacraments and prayer. These things are central and vital, but sadly often underemphasized, underappreciated, and undermined. If Sunday morning is more of a show than it is about the ordinary means of grace, you're undermining the way that God grows His people. This is a gathering for us to grow in our love of the Lord and to, to, to glorify Him in all we do. And so, folks, what happened when the church devoted itself to all these ordinary things Look at verse 43, and awe came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles, and all who believed were together and had all things in common, and they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. People were changed. Awe of the God who would actually condescend to them, take on flesh live, die, be resurrected and ascended for them. That should bring awe. That's all we need to bring awe. Now again, this is not prescriptive. It's not a formula, but what a beautiful result. So how do we apply this to our lives today? As I said, we're going to work out a lot of the implications in future messages. This is just kind of a teaser this morning. But there's one simple question I'll ask. To what are you devoted? To what are you devoted? Is it work? Is it family? Is it a good IRA? What, what are you devoted to? Or is it to the apostles' teaching, to the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and prayers? In essence, are you devoted to the Lord? Because if we neglect what is essential, I will say it's going to be damaging, and your growth will be stunted. But folks, there's more to a church than the gathering and the ordinary means of grace. There is also mission. There's the need to scatter 
in pursuit of the sheep that the Lord is calling to himself. Look at our last two verses in the text, verse 46 and 47. And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. Now, this text is certainly not as, ex- as explicit as something like Matthew 28, 18 to, 18 to 20, the Great Commission, or Acts 1-8, but you'll receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you, and you will be my witnesses to the ends of the earth. But this is a summary given in the context of an evangelistic sermon by Peter, and from that, about 3,000 souls had been added to the church. This is a summary of what continued to happen. The Lord, in His sovereign goodness and grace, added to the church day by day those who were being saved. You see, the desire of the apostles, of the believers, was to see people come to know the one who fulfilled Scripture. They wanted people to know Christ. They wanted people to have eternal life. So they continued their normal practices. They continued going to the temple, breaking bread in their homes, what I I think we could call hospitality. They had people over, neighbors, friends. They lived their lives well, and they they lived their lives with such exemplary conduct that they had favor with all those around them. Their, Their conduct was such that their lives served as witnesses to the truth that they proclaimed. See, there were people deeply affected by that truth of what they devoted themselves to, and they lived, I love this description, with glad and generous hearts. They received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God in their daily lives. What a striking description of a believer. To receive our food daily with glad and generous hearts, knowing that it's God who's provided everything. Give us this day our daily bread. Well, folks, as I stated before, there are many other texts that are much more explicit as to mission. What I simply wanted to establish this morning is that mission is part of the life of the church. There is to not only, there, there, there cannot only be a gathering, but there must be a scattering for a purpose. We would do well to view ourselves as, as we part from one another on Sunday after the service, that we are scattered into the community as missionaries for the gospel, that we scatter for a purpose. We go into the mission field as representatives and mouthpieces of Christ to a broken, hurting, and sinful world that desperately needs to know the Savior. Your neighbors may look like they have a great life, but if they don't know Jesus, they're desperate. People are searching for salvation in so many realms that will all fall woefully short. They will never find salvation apart from Christ. So, folks, here we have a picture of the early church. So, just a couple questions. Do you long for this? Do you long for this? Would you love to see this be true? And if so, do you work towards it? Do you pray? for it. Now, obviously, we cannot over-idealize the New Testament church. They had some major issues, but nonetheless, this is something to strive towards. And let me also say this. I really believe that you will… I don't think you'll find greater satisfaction than what you can find in devotion to Christ. 
and thereby, I would say, devotion to the church, to the bride that he loves so dearly. It will be difficult at times to do this. There will be extenuating circumstances that make this hard. See, the Scriptures don't paint an idyllic picture of the life of a believer or of the church. There was persecution, there was war, there were all kinds of things, but there's also just the fact that the church is populated by people who still sin. And so there's going to be pain and difficulty and misunderstanding and conflict, but devoting yourself to Christ, to the life of the church, to the bride that Jesus died for, it's worth it. It will call for self-sacrifice and taking up your cross, just following what Christ called us to. And we do it for the joy set before us. As believers, we are to rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory because of what has been done for us, because of knowing Christ. And so the church, it's a grace and a privilege to be a part of it, to be part of the plan of God for His glory and for our good and joy. So let me ask you as we start this series, be praying. Pray with me for the good of the church. Pray with me for your hearts to re-engage all the way into the life of Christ and the life of His beautiful bride that He's working every day to conform more and more to His image. Let's pray. Father, thank You again for this day and Your Word. We pray that You would strengthen us, that You would empower us. Give us just a, a greater vision and understanding of the church and awe, what, what You've called us all as believers to. What a privilege. What a grace. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.